Hello friends, welcome to the next class on Survey of Theology. My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, today we begin a new series of lessons uh, for Survey of Theology 2. I just completed Survey of Theology 1, which was nine lessons, uh, primarily intended for undergraduate students at Tyndale Theological Seminary and Biblical Institute. But I just completed the first uh, course, on Survey of Theology, uh, Theo 2301. This is going to be Survey of Theology 2. So this is going to be nine lessons, and it is, again, primarily intended for uh, undergraduate students at Tyndale Theological Seminary. I say primarily because it is also being recorded for my podcast channel as well as my video channels. Today we're going to get into the first of several doctrinal issues. We're going to talk about dispensationalism, After that, we're going to talk about uh, the covenants, we're going to talk about angels, we're going to talk about homardiology, anthropology, and soteriology. Uh, But before we jump into our first topic of discussion, which is dispensationalism, I want to take a moment to go over just a few uh, points in um, in the syllabus, and again, this is intended for the students uh, who are taking this for uh, credit. First of all, Course description, this is a systematic study of the major doctrines of Scripture from a biblical standpoint. Doctrines covered include, and I'm going to start off with dispensationalism and the covenants, but it will also include angelology, anthropology, homardiology, and soteriology. Again, this is Survey of Theology 2. This is the second of three Survey of Theology classes. So after I finish this class, I will record the videos, the next nine videos, for the third and final course on Survey of Theology. Just a reminder, this is a Survey of Theology. Uh, Though there are times that I may dig a little bit into the details, we will today on Dispensationalism. I do want to remember, uh, remind you that this is a survey. We're we're covering these doctrines in an in an introductory way, so we're touching on them somewhat lightly. Uh, For more advanced studies, I will give you uh, books to chase down. Uh, resources, uh, but then also to let you know that you can expect more advanced studies once you get into the master's and doctoral level uh, courses. Course objectives, uh, to become thoroughly familiar with the doctrines of systematic theology, including angelology, anthropology, homardiology, and soteriology, to accurately handle major scriptural passages related to the above doctrines, to become more aware of the practical impact of the above doctrines in the walk of the believer. Uh, Required textbooks. Again, this is for the students who are taking this for credit. First of all is Charles Ryrie, Basic Theology. You must have this. Uh, If you're not taking this for credit, if you're just watching these videos or listening to these lessons for your own uh, uh, um, personal edification, then I do recommend these books to you very Strongly. The other one is Lewis Berry Chafer, Major Bible Themes. Major Bible Themes. I lost the dust jacket on this one. But it was originally written by Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, and was later revised by Dr. John Wolvert. So this is co authored. The third required textbook is going to be uh, Dr. Robert Leitner's uh, book, A Handbook of Evangelical Theology. Again, an excellent, excellent work. Other recommended works. 
uh, H. Wayne House, Charles uh, Charts of Theology and Doctrine. I don't have a hard copy with me, but I do have a copy of Dr. Paul N's The Moody Handbook of Theology. I recommend this very, very highly. Uh, uh, so I uh, would like for you to get that if you can. Another book that is not mentioned here, but I will mention now, because it will appear in lessons as we jump into angelology in particular, and this is my book, Tears Among the Wheat, Living Righteously in a Fallen World. I just completed a series of videos uh, covering this book uh, chapter by chapter, and it was, I think, about 34 lessons in all. But I lifted some of the material from this book and will include it in this uh, in the series of lectures, especially once we get into angelology. Uh, the rest of the syllabus you can look over yourself and you can consult uh, your advising professor if you have any questions about any of the other content in the syllabus. So let me go ahead and jump into our lesson today. We are uh, moving into lesson number 20. This is going to talk about the dispensations the dispensations, and um, these lessons that are being taught are being taught in part from a dispensational perspective. And so I will go into this. This is a, uh, um, in some ways, a challenging subject, uh, but one that I think that is taught in the scriptures, and you will find people that will disagree with you on this particular issue, the covenant theologians, the reformed uh, theologians who hold to covenant theology. Uh, but I'll cover that in more detail as we move forward. So let's talk about the dispensations. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the meaning of dispensations. Now, when I see the word dispensation, it's actually an old English word. The word dispensation, I, when I think of that word, I think of dispensing. Uh, the dispensing of rules or expectations from one person to another, from somebody who is in authority, who has resources, to somebody who is in a subordinate position, who is responsible for those resources, and who must follow the rules or directives set forth by the person in authority. In a very, very simplified way, we could think of a parent to a child. Uh, a parent is the one who has the resources and the authority. The child is the one who may be given things, uh, a, a room to sleep in, a bed to sleep on, uh, clothes to take care of. Well, that child must learn to be responsible with those resources with the clothes that they wear, with a computer, with a, with a cell phone, whatever is given of them, the parent expects the child, and may even give them directives related to that. You can use your phone during the daytime hours, but at nighttime it goes off. Um, you know, you have to, here's these clothes, but you must wash them, you must keep them clean. So there may be directives that follow the giving of resources. Sometimes the directives can change over time. You think of a parent who uh, dispenses rules to children. At the age of five, the child cannot go past the edge, uh, past the edge of the sidewalk. At the age of um, uh, 12, the child cannot go past the uh, end of the block. At the age of 16, the child cannot go beyond the city limits and so on. So rules that may apply at one time will differ at other times. So sometimes rules uh, that were applicable at one time are done away with and new rules are implemented. So it's kind of a very basic idea of this, but I think it kind of gives you the idea of what is meant by dispensation. So let's jump into this. By the way, I will give special attention uh, toward the end of this lecture on the distinctions between the Mosaic Law and the Law of Christ, 
because as Christians, we are not under the Mosaic laws, the rule of life. And I'm going to argue that point, and I'm going to uh, make a, a strong case for that, hopefully. So the word dispensation, uh, as it is found primarily in the King James Version, is a translation of the Greek word akoinomia, which means a stewardship or administration. Akoinomia is a compound Greek word. It means that there's two Greek words that make up this word. First is the word oikos, oikos, which means house. The second is the word namos, namos, which means law. And so here we're talking about house laws or house rules. And again, we think of somebody who is in a position of authority with resources, who delegates uh, resources to a subordinate and then gives them directives with regard to the managing of those resources. We see an example of this over in Luke chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, where Jesus here is speaking to his disciples. Let me go back to verse 1. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. Now, the word manager translates the Greek word akoinomos, akoinomos, which we'll look at here in just a moment. And uh, it's a word that means manager or steward um, and one who was responsible for the household affairs of another, in this case, the rich man. So there was a man who had uh, a manager, and this manager was reported to him as, as squandering his possessions. So he was not a good manager. He was a bad manager. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So he's taking the management from him. And the manager said to him, What shall I do since my master is taking the management? And the word management here is our Greek word, akoinomia, our Greek word, akoinomia. And again, it's translated as management or a stewardship. That's another good word, or administration. One can think over in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, where Paul says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. By the way, when we're talking about uh, resources or something that comes from God to the believer, uh, there is a responsibility for that resource to be used for God's glory and the edification of other people. Let me state that again. With regard to a stewardship, it is God giving resources to a person for his glory and the edification of other people. Uh, this home that I live in, I feel, uh, is a gift from God. I, I accept and understand to be a gift from God, and I use it for his glory and the edification of others. Uh, I host Bible studies in my home every Saturday night. We have since about 2006. And so this home is used as a resource to invite God's people to come in uh, to teach Bible lessons, to make them feel loved and valued and appreciated and safe and, and cared for. Uh, I have resources such as this camera I'm staring at, this microphone that is just up here, this microphone which is just down here, my digital recorder, my desk, my lighting system. This is all. These are all resources that were given to me by God, and I must be responsible for them. I must take care of them, and I must use them for His glory and for the edification of His people. This is being recorded for the students at Tyndale Theological Seminary and for a larger audience who... Uh, may watch these videos or listen to these podcasts uh, for their own theological training and development. But we want to be a good steward. And so here, that's what Paul's talking about. He talks about the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to him. Notice what he says, for you. Now, it is true that we are blessed when we use, uh, when, when we properly exercise uh, our spiritual gifts uh, for the edification of other people. 
but it is primarily for the edification of other people. Colossians 1.25, Paul says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship. There's our word, a koinomia. According to the stewardship from God bestowed on me, notice this, for your benefit. And so we always want to keep that in mind, that there is a there is a responsibility given to the one who is given these resources and has rules to follow. Now, the word ekoinomia, according to Badag, and Badag is just a short abbreviation for Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, uh, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. Uh, it's just a dictionary. It's an expensive dictionary, but a lexicon is just a dictionary. It's a very good one. It's used by a very reputable Bible scholar, so I use it. But uh, according to Bedag, it may be defined as, quote, a state of being arranged, arrangement, order, or plan, end quote. Now, the word akoinamas, akoinamas, if akoinamia is a stewardship or, 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 or responsible or a management given to a person, uh, the akoinamas refers to the steward who manages the household affairs. Again, Luke 12.42 refers to the steward. This is the person who is responsible. Uh, pastors uh, who supervise local churches are also called akoinamas. Here Paul writes to Timothy, he says, For the overseer, that is the pastor, the church elder, must be above reproach as God's steward. So he's given a responsibility, and the responsibility is for the spiritual development of those persons who attend church, for their theological training, so that they can learn the Word of God, that they might properly live the Word of God. But there is a stewardship that is given to him. It is a responsibility and something that is to be taken seriously. Uh, The word is also used of Christians who supervise their own spiritual gift. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter writes, as each one has received a special gift, notice again something that is given to us. It is a resource. It is a spiritual gift. Peter says, employ it in what? Serving one another. Um, And so the fruit of the Christian life is never for the benefit of the Christian himself or herself. It's for the benefit of others. I mean, the fruit that hangs on a tree is not for the tree's benefit. It's for the benefit of other people. Um, Now, it is true that we benefit when we exercise our spiritual gift and when we give to others. I think of when Paul said in Acts where he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's absolutely true. Uh, but the uh, again, it is always really intended uh, primarily for the benefit of others. So we are to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And spiritual gifts can differ. I happen to have the gift of teaching. That is my gift. Uh, I was given to me at the moment of salvation and at the moment that I surrendered my life to Christ and began to grow spiritually, my gift naturally manifested. And once I became aware of it, then I felt responsible for it. I felt like I had to go to college. I had to get a proper education. I had to learn Greek and Hebrew, and I had to learn theology and history and philosophy and good communication skills. And I'm constantly learning, constantly learning. I had to watch hundreds and hundreds of videos um, on YouTube on how to use camera equipment, uh, lighting, uh, uh, microphones, I mean, there's so much education that goes into this whole process, but you do it for, again, the benefit of other people. Some people are given the gift of leadership, and they must develop that spiritual gift. Some are given the gift of mercy. They must develop that gift. Some are given the gift of helps. They must develop that gift. Some are given the gift of giving. 
Uh, God has endowed some believers with business acumen, with business skills, and wisdom and opportunities to invest and to make money and to become wealthy in this world uh, so that these believers might in turn might fund uh, other Christians, churches, ministries. I have people <clears throat> who give to me and <clears throat> I can afford this equipment <clears throat> Excuse me, because of those persons who have given to me. But, but the point is, is that God, <clears throat> excuse me, is that God gives gifts uh, for people to be responsible with and for the benefit of other people. Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, excuse me, uh, defines, um, defines a dispensation as follows. He says, quote, a dispensation can be defined as a stage in the progressive revelation of God, constituting a distinctive stewardship or rule of life, end quote. And there's a lot that's in there. By the way, if you really want to unpack the subject of dispensationalism, I'm going to recommend this book right here, Dispensationalism by Dr. Charles Ryrie. Dispensationalism by Dr. Charles Ryrie. Outstanding book. I've read his works. I had the privilege of sitting in on a few classes with him. A very gentle, very humble man, but a scholar of the highest caliber. So I'm going to recommend that book as well. Uh, So talking about the dispensations... Uh, And when we think of a dispensation, we want to really think of a period of time in which God gave resources and responsible rules uh, for those resources. Uh, So that's kind of how we want to think about it. We want to think about a period of time in which God gave resources to people and gave them rules with regard to to, to the management of those resources. So there are commonly seven dispensations mentioned in Scripture. I am a traditional dispensationalist. I hold to these seven. Now, there's some that hold to fewer, some that hold to more. That's fine. They can go their way. I'll go with God. Um, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But when when you think about uh, the first dispensation, what is commonly called the dispensation of innocence, think about this. God creates Adam and Eve. God creates the garden, the Garden of Eden. He takes Adam and Eve and he puts them into the garden. Now, when you read Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2, you realize that God not only gave them the blessing of the garden, there's the resource, but he also gave them rules. They were to cultivate the garden, that is, that they were to work in the garden. Work itself is not a result of the fall. Uh, Frustrating work, uh, the burden of work, sometimes associated with the fall, uh, is what we complain about, but work itself is a gift from God. And so God gave them the Garden of Eden, and they were to cultivate it. They were to be responsible to cultivate the garden, to care for it, to be good gardeners. And they were to guard it. Uh, So they were to uh, cultivate it. They were to keep it. They were also given freedom within the garden. God gave them directive, and he said, look, you can eat from any tree uh, in the Garden of Eden except one. So there was freedom there. If they wanted to eat vegetables for breakfast and eat uh, a fruit for lunch and dinner, if they wanted uh, pears for breakfast and apricots for lunch and peaches for dinner, switch that around the next day, there was freedom there. So they had responsibility and they had rules that governed them in the garden. There was a negative rule. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the warning that in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so you have these rules, these directives that are given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, that all disappears in Genesis 3 when they disobeyed God, when they ate the forbidden fruit, and they were removed from the Garden. Those rules 
that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden were no longer applicable after the garden. They were under a different set of rules. And, uh, and so those rules were applicable to them at that time in that place. The rules that God gave to Noah were applicable to him in his time. The rules that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were responsible, uh, they were responsible for at that time. The rules given to the nation of Israel through Moses, the giving of the Mosaic Law, circa 1445 B.C., Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, that was given to them at that time period. In the church, we are not under the Mosaic Law. I'm going to argue this point a little bit later, so hold on. But the point that you must uh, understand is that there are resources and responsibilities and directives. And, but those rules, those directives that were given at that time were true for those persons in that place at that time. Uh, the second dispensation is what is commonly called the conscience. <clears throat> and this means that after the fall, until the time of the flood, people were ruled internally by their conscience. Now, the conscience is a gift from God. It is that internal moral compass that we have that is intended to direct us with regard to things that are right and wrong. Now, when the conscience is functioning ideally, it's it's a good guide. The problem is we have fallen natures, we live in a fallen world, and as the New Testament reveals in a number of cases, uh, the new, the conscience can be damaged, it can be seared, uh, it can be rendered in some cases probably inoperative, but nonetheless, this was the uh, rule for them. This is called the dispensation of conscience. We have the dispensation of government in Genesis uh, chapter nine, verse one through eleven, uh, chapter eleven, verse thirty-two, in which God institutes human government for the first time. And so you have the dispensation of government, where humans were to govern themselves. You have the dispensation of promise, uh, which occurs in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and goes through Genesis, excuse me, Exodus 19, verse 25, which at the end of Exodus 19, you have, you have Moses and the people of Israel coming out of the Exodus of Egypt uh, stationed at the foot of Mount Sinai, and so they are then ready, uh, poised to receive the Mosaic Law. The fifth uh, dispensation is called the dispensation of law. This has to do with the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel alone, not the surrounding nations, not the church, very distinct group of people, both the people of God but under different rules. But they were to go into the land. They were to be responsible in the land with that resource that God had given them. And they were to abide by the 613 uh, laws given in the Mosaic Law Code. We are in the dispensation of grace, or what is called the dispensation of the church age, or the law of Christ. And this started in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and goes through Revelation chapter 3, verse 22. The church began in Acts 2. And really, when you think about even the four Gospels, those are under the law of, under the law of Moses, really. And uh, you think of Galatians 4, 4, where Paul says of, of Jesus that he was born of a woman born under the law that is under the Mosaic Law Code. And for example, if you go back to um, if you go back to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, you have an example where Jesus heals a man of leprosy, and then he tells him, he says, go show yourself to the priest, that would be to the Levitical priest, and offer a sacrifice according to the law of Moses. Now, Jesus being under the Mosaic Law and the Law Code, the Mosaic Law being operational at that time, that was required of this man who had been healed of leprosy. 
Well, today, if Jesus healed somebody from leprosy, he would not give that directive because we are not under the Mosaic Law Code. There is not a Levitical priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. There is not a physical temple in Jerusalem. There may be in the future during the time, well, there will be during the time of the tribulation, uh, but uh, there is no functioning temple in Jerusalem, and there's no sacrificial system. We would not offer animal sacrifices. So those directives, again, must be understood as being part of that law code system. Finally, there is the uh, dispensation of the millennial kingdom, and this has to do with the reign of Christ into the eternal state. So let me uh, point out a Latin phrase here. This is called the sine qua non. The the sine qua non. And this uh, is a a Latin phrase that refers to that which is essential or indispensable. It means that without which not, I think, if I remember correctly. But basically it's a Latin phrase that refers to that which is essential. And so when we talk about what are the essentials of dispensationalism, what is at the very core? Three things. Three things. First, the sine qua non of dispensational theology is first a doxological view of history uh, in which the manifestation of God's glory is primary. Um, And so it is a doxological view of of Scripture and history. Now, uh, my covenant theologian friends would say that the primary purpose of God is redemptive that he's looking to redeem mankind and the creation, and that is, a, that is the theme, the primary. They would say that is the primary. Well, I would say that I would put that under the umbrella of God's glory, that it reveals God's glory, that it manifests God's glory, that it brings God glory. And as wonderful as redemption is, trust me, I'm redeemed, uh, born again, <laughs> trusted in Christ as my Savior, uh, am a child of God because of the blood of Christ shed on my behalf. But nonetheless, I would uh, the dispensational view says that um, that the primary purpose of God in Scripture and history is doxological in nature. In other words, it is intended to bring Him glory. The second sine qua non of dispensational theology is a distinction between Israel and the Church. It's a distinction between Israel and the Church. And I wrote an article some years ago that was wound up being uh, published in a book in a multi-author work called "What Is Dispensationalism." What is Dispensationalism is the title of the book. It was published in 2018. And I wrote chapter 9 on the church. And uh, and so the article, uh, that chapter is titled, What is the Church? And that article can be found on my blog, which is called Thinking on Scripture, if you want to chase that down. But the second issue is a distinction between Israel and the church, both the people of God, but under different law codes, under different law codes. And the third uh, distinction or the third issue uh, in dispensational theology is a consistent literal method of interpretation in which the Christian reads the Bible in a plain manner. My covenant theologian friends, I would say, hold to a literal method of interpretation. They do in many, many, many passages, and I praise and, and, and thank them for that. It's just they're not always consistent. And that's why the operative word here is a consistent literal method of interpretation in which the Christian reads the Bible in a plain manner. Plain interpretation, I'll read the footnote here, plain interpretation means the Christian interprets the words and phrases of Scripture according to the normal rules of grammar, identifying the meaning of words and phrases according to their contextual and historical usage, and consider each verse in the light of its immediate context as well as the larger context of the book and the Bible as a whole. Now, with each dispensation, God gave specific commands to his people. 
By the way, I am prone to repetition, and I mentioned this in the last uh, course I taught in series of lessons, and if you're around me for any period of time, you will realize I am prone to repetition, and very unapologetically so, because I think that's how we learn. I think we learn by repetition, and so I will repeat myself, so just be aware of that. So with each dispensation, God gave specific commands to his people that they might live in righteous conformity to his expectations. He gave commands to the first humans living in the sinless environment of the Garden of Eden. He gave commands to Noah. He gave commands to Abraham. He gave commands to the Israelites, known as the Mosaic Law, after delivering them from their bondage in Egypt. The Mosaic Law, by the way, the Mosaic Law refers specifically refers to, according to Leviticus 26.46, it refers to the statutes and ordinances and the laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, that's very specific. It wasn't given to the surrounding nations. It was given, it's specifically the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself as the lawgiver and the sons of Israel, that's a very specific group of people, through Moses at Mount Sinai. That was a very, spe- a very specific occasion in human history. Now, God has given commands to Christians. We are under what is called the law of Christ. Uh, and it's called the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9.21, as well as again in Galatians 6.2. These biblical distinctions are important, for though all Scripture is written for the benefit of the Christian, <clears throat> only some portions of it speak specifically to him, and command his walk with the Lord. Just as a Christian would not try to obey the commands God gave to Adam and Eve in in, in Genesis chapter 1, because we wouldn't follow those commandments. We're not in that situation. And so those laws do not apply to us. So just as the Christian would not try to obey the commands God gave to Adam in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, nor would we try to obey the commands that God gave to Noah in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Nobody today is called to go build an ark. Well, somebody did build an ark, but they weren't under d- divine direction to do so. Um, <clears throat> so the Christian should not try to obey the commands God gave to Israel in Exodus, uh, in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. If we were to look at that body of Scripture that speaks to you and me as the Christian living in the dispensation of the church age, I would start in Romans chapter 1, and I would go to the end of Revelation chapter 3. You say, well, Steve, what do you do with the book of Acts? Well, the book of Acts is a history book. And what we find in the book of Acts is largely descriptive, not prescriptive. And so the book of Acts is very, very informative. It's very helpful about the first 30 years of church history, but it doesn't really offer any directives with regard to the Christian life. We see what they did. But we must understand that what we see in the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. If you want to know uh, what is prescriptive, what does God prescribe for the Christian living in the dispensation of the church age, what are the specific directives that speak to you and speak to me as a body of law that speak to our thoughts, our words, our actions, I would start in Romans chapter 1, and I would go to the end of Revelation chapter 3. Well, why stop there, Steve? Well... Because in Revelation chapter 4, those are things that are future. Uh, Now you're getting into the time of the tribulation, the seven-year period that precedes the millennial kingdom. And so from Revelation 4, you have the church that is pictured in heaven. I think that's a picture of the rapture of the church. We're not here on the earth. 
And so when I think again of those specific body of law of, of Scripture that speaks to our thoughts, our words, our actions, and those directives that speak to us as Christians, I would not go to uh, I would not go to the Old Testament. Uh, I would go again from Revelation uh, through excuse me Romans chapter one through Revelation chapter three. As that section of Scripture marks the specific body of Scripture that directs the Christian uh, life, both regarding specific commands and divine principles. Quoting Dr. Charles Ryrie, he says, Adam lived under laws, the sum of which may be called the Code of Adam or the Code of Eden. Noah was expected to obey the laws of God, so there was a Noahic Code. We know that God revealed many commands and laws to Abraham. They may be called the Abrahamic Code. The Mosaic Law Code contained all of the laws of the law, and today we live under the law of Christ, or the law of the Spirit of life in Christ. This code contains the hundreds of specific commandments directed in the New Testament, or recorded in the New Testament, end quote. So that's absolutely true. So both Israel and the church are the people of God. There are distinctions uh, between us concerning God's expectations. For example, Israel had a priesthood that was specific to Aaron and the tribe of Levi. If you were a priest in the Old Testament, not anybody could be a priest. It was specific to the descendants of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. So if you were of the tribe of Dan or the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin, forget it. You're not going to be a priest. You may want to be. doesn't matter. The Mosaic Law only set that forth very narrowly for the descendants of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. But guess what? In the dispensation of the church age, all Christians are priests to God. All Christians are priests to God. If you're a believer in Christ, if you are born again, having trusted Christ as your Savior, well, guess what? You have been made a priest. It's one of the many blessings that God bestows upon us and the responsibilities that we have as Christians. And so Revelation 1.6 says, And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God. And as priests, we do not offer animal sacrifices. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. Uh, Israel's worship was tied to the tabernacle and later the temple. If you were going to worship in ancient Israel, you had to first go to the tabernacle, which was built during the time of Moses, shortly after the Exodus. But later on, was built. Uh, the temple was built by Solomon. It took him about seven years to complete. But it was a physical structure, a temple in Jerusalem. And so if you were going to worship, you had to go to the temple, and the priests had to help you, okay? But Christians, uh, we don't have a temple. In fact, there's not even a temple in Jerusalem right now. Now, there will be in the future during the time of the tribulation, uh, but there's not one there now. And even if there was, we would not be called to go and offer animal sacrifices, because that, again, is not expected of us. Christians gather locally wherever uh, we wish, and our body is the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? <clears throat> Israel was required to offer animal sacrifices to God. Uh, they also offered uh, uh, offerings from the ground, uh, the fruits, the vegetables uh, that grew uh, in, their, in their fields. They also offered animals, sheep, goats, bulls. Uh, doves, these things were offered up to the Lord, so they offered animal sacrifices. But Christians are called to offer spiritual sacrifices. We don't bring animals to church to be offered upon an altar. No, no, no. 
No, that's not expected of us. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.5, he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, another reference to the priesthood. To do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we offer up spiritual sacrifices. One of those is the sacrifice, the presentation of our body as a living and holy sacrifice, which Paul says in Romans 12.1 is your spiritual service of worship. Hebrews 13.15 says that we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. So we offer up spiritual sacrifices, not animal sacrifices. Israelites, under the Mosaic Law, were required to tithe from the produce of their land. Uh, They were required to tithe or give a tenth of the produce of their land. That also included a tenth of their herds, which could include sheep, goats, or bulls. But God requires no tithe from Christians, only a joyful attitude of giving. As 2 Corinthians 9 tells us, for God loves a cheerful giver. Under the Mosaic Law, God demanded punishment for sin, and sometimes, and some sins were punishable by death. And sometimes God himself executed the punishment, and other times it was carried out by Israel's leaders. In the church age, God does not call Christians to put anybody to death, uh, but has delegated that authority solely to the governments of this world, or does it himself. All right, let's take some time to do special focus on the law of Moses and the law of Christ. And here I will get into a little bit of uh, repetition. The Mosaic law was the expected rule of life for the Israelite. And and I bring this up because today there are Christians who would say that we are under the Mosaic law either, I mean, some would even go so far as to say in whole, most would say really in part that the animal sacrifices have done away, but we still have to keep the moral law code and And I'm going to address that issue. So I'm focusing on this because this is really at the heart of the contention between those who are dispensationalists and those who are covenant theologians. And again, I have some some friends who are covenant theologians whom I love. I have great regard for them. And some some, uh, covenant writers whom I love very greatly. I I love many of the writings of Dr. J.I. Packer. I've got to sit in on a class with him one time, met him, very kind and gentle man. But I disagree with his ecclesiology, (laughs) and I disagree with his eschatology. But uh, even though I think he's wrong in those areas, he has produced much, much that is good and beneficial uh, Christian literature. We just have to to be careful to separate those things out. And listen, be gracious, be kind, be loving. Uh, You know, we can disagree on certain doctrinal issues, And we can still do it in a way that is loving and kind. There's no place for having a fist-in-your-face attitude. Please, be nice. So let me go into this. Now, the Mosaic Law was the expected rule of life for the Israelite. And this refers to that body of laws that are found starting in Exodus chapter 20 with the giving of the Ten Commandments to the end of Deuteronomy. One could argue to the end of Deuteronomy 28, which sets forth the blessings and cursings. Um, And really, we could probably push it even beyond that, to be honest, uh, to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. But the Mosaic Law uh, specifically, and here's where some repetition comes in, refers specifically, as Leviticus 26.46 tells us, it refers to the statutes, the ordinances, and the laws 
notice, which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel. Those are Israelites. Those are Jews. Those are the people of God uh, who were given the Mosaic law at that specific time. Now, God has a future plan for Israel. God loves Israel. Jeremiah 31, he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you in loving kindness. And so God loves Israel. They're still his people. He still has a purpose and a plan for them. And as Christians, we should pray for Israel. And we should we should seek to evangelize uh, when we have opportunity. And we should do good. This is not a blanket endorsement for all that they do. There's much that goes on in the nation of Israel that, that one can stand back and say, uh, don't agree with that, don't approve of that. But you still love the people of God. They're still his chosen people. But when we think about this law, it again, it was between God and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, none of the surrounding nations uh, of Israel, that is the Gentiles, were expected to live by the commands of the Mosaic law because they were not God's people and were not in a covenant relationship with him. The Gentile was no more under the Mosaic law than a Canadian is under U.S. law as laws only speak and have authority to its citizenry. Let me say that again. The Gentile, in the Old Testament, the Gentile was no more under the Mosaic law than a Canadian is under U.S. law. There, We have a body of laws that apply to us here as citizens living in the United States of America that are specific to us. They don't apply to Canada. They don't apply to Mexico. Uh, and so we have a body of laws that pertains to us. That's true for Israel, ancient Israel. The laws pertain to them as a nation, as the people of God. And they were a theocracy. In fact, they're the only theocracy to have ever existed in the history of the human race. Um, where God was their king, he was their lawgiver, and he was their judge. And he functioned, he functioned that way. But the Gentile, again, was no more under the Mosaic law than a Canadian is under U.S. laws, as laws only speak and have authority to its citizenry. Likewise, uh, the teachings of the New Testament uh, that pertain to the church are, are not applicable to non-Christians. They're not, they're not called to abide by those rules. That's for you. That's for me. Because we have trusted in Christ, and we are in the body of Christ, and we are in the church, and therefore those directives speak to us. Now, first of all, let me say that the Mosaic Law was never a means of justification before God. Never, 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 never. It was never a means of being saved. Uh, because that has always been by faith alone in God and His promises. I get, I get, this gets me fired up because I run into people who think, oh, well, I'll just keep the Ten Commandments and God will let me into heaven. Wrong! <laughs> oh, I'll just live a moral life and God will let me into heaven. Wrong! We are not saved by good works. Not. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag before the Lord. Not all of our sins, all of our righteous deeds. And by the way, the word filthy rags there means literally a menstrual rag. Yeah, that's what the Hebrew means. And so if we were to take all of our righteous deeds, all of our good works, put them into a bag and bring them to God and demand the trade-in value, it would be worth one filthy rag. And that's not acceptable. That will not get you entrance into heaven. It won't. And the scriptures are very clear, Galatians 2.16. Paul says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, faith in Christ, and not 
by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now, let me read that again, because it is so important to understand this, that we, that a man is not justified in the sight of God by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you want to be justified in God's sight? Trust in Christ as your Savior. He says, even we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Listen, salvation comes to you as a gift. It's a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. Salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift. And if you have to pay for it in any way, guess what? It's not a gift. If you have to pay for it in any way, it's not a gift. We trust in Christ and Christ alone. It is not faith in Christ plus good deeds. It's not faith in Christ plus anything. Uh, it is faith. It is We are saved by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, what happened was, was that over time, the Mosaic Law became perverted into a system of works whereby men sought to earn their salvation before God. Even in the time of Christ, men asked Jesus, think of John 6, 28 and 29, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus uh, narrowed it down. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's really the issue. You want to get right down to it? It's believe in him whom he has sent. Now, regarding the fact that the Mosaic Law never justifies anyone, Merrill F. Unger, and here I'm quoting from Unger's Bible Dictionary, which is another really good resource you should have, concerning uh, justification, he says, quote, By nature, the law is not grace. It is holy, righteous, good, and spiritual. In its ministry, it declares and proves all men guilty. Yet it justifies no one. It cannot impart righteousness or life. It causes offenses to abound. It served as an instructor until Christ appeared. In relationship to the believer, the law emphatically does not save anyone. A believer does not live under the law, but he stands and grows in grace. The nation Israel alone was the recipient of the law, end quote. And he's absolutely right. Now listen, we could spend a whole uh, hour just unpacking these scriptures here. But Galatians 3.21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Think of it. If righteousness before God comes through the law, then to be righteous, I just need to obey the law. But he's very clear, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, we wouldn't need the death of Christ, we would just need to be better. <laughs> but the scripture is very clear that we are not saved by works. In fact, let me go a little bit further here. In the New Testament, um, the New Testament reveals the Mosaic Law uh, in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, was regarded as a yoke. It was regarded as a yoke which Israel had not been able to bear. 
And this because of this because their sinful flesh was weak. Let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is righteous, the law is holy, the law is good because it comes from a righteous, holy, and good God. The problem is with sinful man. That's the problem. And so when Peter refers to the to the Mosaic law as a yoke, uh, which Israel had not been able to bear, um, he, he's really quite clear on that because because it was never a means of justification, and that was the issue in Acts 15. There were some people who were teaching that um, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. See, they were trying to bring people under the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Uh, so there is no fault with the Mosaic law. As Paul says in Romans 7.12, it is holy. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, and it should be understood that way. The Mosaic law is holy because it comes from God who is holy and righteous and good. And because the Mosaic law is holy, it exposes the faults of people and shows them to be sinful. When you come into contact with the law, you know what it does? Is it real? Is it brings you to the reality you're a sinner because you can't keep the law. You can't. It's impossible. And Paul says in Romans 3.20, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. My goodness. Drive the point. Drive the point. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Can I say that again? By the works of the law, no flesh. You can't be justified in his sight. For through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. It points out to you that you are a sinner and that you are helpless and you stand guilty before a righteous and holy God and you cannot save yourselves. You cannot save yourself. It's impossible. And so you come with the empty hands of faith and you trust in Christ and Christ alone because Christ is the only way that we can be saved and have eternal life. It is the only way. And that is why the cross is so important for the believer. More so because man is inherently sinful and bent towards sin when he comes into contact with God's holy law. It actually stimulates his sin nature and influences him to sin even more. Now, this, is, this just means that the sin nature gets fired up when, when it's told, do this, don't do that. It's like the child, you know, it's like when you tell a kid, don't touch that, and they go over and, like, you know, and they start touching it. Because as soon as you tell them not to do something, that's the thing that they want to go and do. Romans 5.20 says, For the law came in that, so that transgression might increase. Because with the coming of the law, sin actually increased. Not because there's anything wrong with the law, but to demonstrate the sinfulness of mankind. Think of Romans 7, 7 through 8. Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Meganoito, very strong phrase. On the contrary, Paul says, I would not have come to known sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had, had not said, you shall not covet. But notice, but sin taking an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. It produced in me coveting of every kind. Now, Paul made clear that the Mosaic law was not the rule of life for the Christian. I'm driving this point because we are not under the Mosaic law as the rule of life. We're talking about dispensations, but we're talking about uh, responsibilities that we have as managers, as stewards of God's resources, 
but under a specific set of directives, rules, laws that he has given to us as the body of Christ. We are not under the Mosaic law. That was a specific body of law given to the nation of Israel for a period of time. We are not Israel. Israel's not the church. The church is not Israel, both the people of God, but under different law codes. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 11, even referred to the Mosaic law. Interestingly, he referred to it as a ministry of death and condemnation. He referred to it as a ministry of death and condemnation because that's what it produced. Again, there's nothing wrong with the law, but it demonstrates our sinfulness is what it does. And Paul even stated that it was intended to be temporary. Uh, He says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So it shows that it was temporary because Christ fulfilled the law. Christ fulfilled the law. He met every expectation of the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He committed no sin. In fact, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus makes it very clear that he did not come to abolish but to fulfill the law. Romans 10, 1 through 4 makes it very clear that Christ fulfilled the law. Um, But Paul stated that it was temporary and that it was never uh, the basis for justification. Again, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 2.21, Galatians 3.21. Paul says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart righteousness, then indeed, that indeed uh, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. Romans 4, 1 through 5, Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, and he wasn't, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. See, it's faith and faith alone. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. What does he mean by that? Well, to put it this way, to the one who works 40 hours a week, his paycheck is not a gift. It's what's owed to him. Okay, and that's what Paul is simply getting at here. So like I work for an employer and we have an arrangement to where I work for two weeks and I put my employer in debt. And at the end of two weeks, my employer uh, alleviates that debt uh, by putting an agreed-upon set of money amount into my checking account. And so we're back at zero. And then I go for another two weeks and put my employer back in debt. But when they put a, a check in my, in my bank account, that's not a gift. My employer's not just simply being kind to me. No, 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 no. It is compensation for work done. And that's Paul's point here. Now, to the one who works... His wage or his paycheck is not considered favor or a gift, but what is due to him, what is owed to him. But that's not how salvation is. Salvation is not by works. Salvation is a gift. It's by the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. He paid it all. He paid it all. He bore our sin upon the cross, and there's nothing left for us to pay. And we receive the gift of salvation, eternal life, the gift of righteousness, a spiritual gift, many blessings. But it is by grace, it's a gift uh, received by faith. Notice what he says in verse 5, but to the one who does not work, underscore that in your Bible, 
to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. Not the good, not the kind, not the gentle, not the righteous man. The ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. How? When we turn to Christ, that his faith is credited as righteousness. So the law was never a basis for justification, but was intended to lead men to Christ that they may be justified by faith. Paul says in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor, our paedagogos, uh, our instructor, to lead us to where? Christ. So that we may be justified by faith. You see, the law brings you to the place of the reality that you are a sinner and to the place of utter helplessness that according to the law, you cannot be saved by the works of the law. Period. And you come to a place in frustration, and so the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ because we still need justification, we still need forgiveness, we still need life and and righteousness, and we need these things from God. But we can't do it through the works of the law. It comes to us by means of faith in Christ. And now that Christ has come and fulfilled every aspect of the law and died on the cross, the Mosaic law in its entirety... Let me be clear here, the Mosaic Law in its entirety has been rendered inoperative as a rule of life. Now, it still functions in the sense of pointing out sinfulness, but it, but as a rule of life, as a, as a means of how we are to live in this world and to be responsible before God, we don't follow the Mosaic Law. It is not the rule of life for us. Hebrews 8.13 makes it very clear that he has made that covenant obsolete. He's made it obsolete. He has rendered it obsolete. It is no longer operational. According to Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he says, As a rule of life, the law of Moses was temporary and came to an end with the death of Messiah. And that is taken from his uh, Israelology, uh, page 373 and 374. That's another good book, too. About 1,100. It's a big book. I remember reading it a few years back, kind of kind of difficult to get through, but very, very rewarding, worth your time. Uh, because God is the author of both law codes, that is the law of Moses and the law of Christ, it is not surprising that he chose to incorporate some of the laws he gave to Israel into the law code which he has given to the church. And I think of this too, because just like um, uh, back during the time of the Revolutionary War, uh, America was a British colony. Case we were under British law. Uh, early on, we were under King King George. He was our king, and he was the king before before uh, President George Washington. But we were uh, we were a British colony. But once we became our own country at the end of the Revolutionary War, when we when we won, we founded our own laws. But here's what's interesting: some of the laws uh, that were started in America were in some ways drawn from British law because they were very applicable. And so what could be borrowed was borrowed and brought in. But then there were whole new aspects of law and whole new laws that were brought in because we were a new nation. But I bring that up just simply to say that that sometimes we can borrow from another. And so when trying to understand which laws have carried over, well, let me go back and say this again. So, because God is the author of both law codes, that is the law code of Moses and the law code of Christ in the church, it is not surprising that he chose to incorporate some of the laws he gave to Israel 
into the law code which he has given to the church. When trying to understand which law codes have carried over and which have not, the general rule to follow is this. What God has not restated in the New Testament to the church has been altogether abrogated. And I've modified that. Uh, that's actually taken from a lesson I watched some years ago by um, uh, Dr. Robert Dean, uh, whom I love and appreciate very much, who's been very influential in my own theological development. But he used to say, what has not been restated has been abrogated. And I think that's a good rule. I think that makes good sense. So what God has not restated in the New Testament to the church has been altogether abrogated. Uh, Charles Ryrie states, quote, The Mosaic Law was done away with, its in, with, it was done away with in its entirety as a code. It has been replaced by the law of Christ. The law of Christ contains some new commands, some old ones, and some revised ones. All the laws of the Mosaic Law have been abolished because the code itself has, end quote. Paul stated uh, to the church-age believer in Romans 6.14 that the church-age believer is no longer under the law, but under grace. Now he's talking about as a rule of life. Grace is the rule of life for the Christian. Though rendered inoperative as a rule of life, the Mosaic Law can be used. It is still, trust me, it is still the Word of God. It is still righteous, still holy, still good, and still valuable. I mean, it tells us about God. It tells us about what kind of God He is, he, that He's a God of law. He's a God of order. He's a God of righteousness, and that He's a God of expectation of His people. But when we think about the Mosaic Law as a rule of life, though it has been rendered inoperative as a rule of life, the Mosaic Law can teach can be used to teach such things as God's holiness, man's sinfulness, the need for an atonement, and the ultimate need for people to trust in Christ for salvation. Though all scripture is for us, all scripture is for us, though not all scripture is to us. Regarding our being under grace, Henry Thiessen states, quote, the believer has been made free from the law, but liberty does not mean license. To offset this danger of antinomianism, which is just a word that means lawlessness, he says again, quoting here him, uh, to offset this danger of antinomianism, the scriptures teach that we have not only been delivered from the law, but also joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit to God. We are thus not without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Freedom from law should not result in license, but love. The believer is, consequently, to keep his eyes on Christ as his example and teacher and by the Holy Spirit to fulfill his law, end quote. Being under the grace system does not mean the believer is without law and can therefore sin as he please. That's, that, that's dumb. Uh, now, some people say, well, if you're not under the law, it means you can do whatever you want. No, that is not, not what that means. Oh, do I hear that. The New Testament speaks of the perfect law of liberty. It speaks of the royal law. It speaks of the law of Christ. It speaks of the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And writing about the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2, uh, Dr. Thomas Constable states, quote, The law of Christ is the code of commandments under which Christians live. Some of the commandments uh, Christ and his apostles gave us are the same as those uh, that Moses gave the Israelites. However, this does not mean that we are under the same Mosaic Code. 
Residents of the United States live under a code of laws that is similar to but different from the code of laws that govern residents of England. Some of our laws are the same as theirs, but others are different. Because some laws are the same, we should not conclude that the codes are the same. Christians no longer live under the Mosaic Law. We live under a new code, the Law of Christ. Just as the Israelite living under the Mosaic... And here and now, this is back to my notes. Just as the Israelite living under the Mosaic Law had a clear body of Scripture to which he could look for guidance in day-to-day living, so the Christian has a clear body of Scripture that guides him. And I take this from Romans 1 through Revelation 3. To understand God's will, the Christian should think and live according to the law of Christ as it is revealed in the New Testament. Some of the commandments from the Mosaic Law have carried over into the law of Christ. For example, nine of the Ten Commandments uh, have carried over, and others such as no other gods, honor your father and mother. Uh, But most have been abrogated, such as slavery laws, tithing, the sacrificial system, the dietary laws. I eat bacon. (laughs) I enjoy it. Thank you. And there are even some new commands, such as do not grieve the Holy Spirit, do not quench the Spirit, love as Christ loved, etc. These distinctions are very important to understand if the believer is to live God's will in in every particular and to glorify Him both in time and eternity. Quoting from Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum again, he says, and this is a lengthy quote, so follow with me. He says, quote, the law of Moses has been disannulled and we are now under a new law. This new law is called the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2 and the law of the spirit of life in Romans 8.2. This is a brand new law, totally separate from the law of Moses. The law of Christ contains all the individual commandments from Christ and the apostles applicable to a New Testament believer. A simple comparison of the details will show that it is not and cannot be the same law, the same as the law of Moses. Four observations are worth noting. First, many commandments are the same as those of the law of Moses. For example, nine of the Ten Commandments are also in the law of Christ. But second, many are different from the law of Moses. For example, there is no Sabbath law now and no dietary code. Third, some commandments in the law of Moses are, in, are intensified by the law of Christ. The law of Moses said, love your neighbor, uh, said, love thy neighbor as thyself. This made man the standard. The law of Christ said, love one another even as I have loved you, John chapter 15. This makes the Messiah the standard, and he loved, and he loved us enough to die for us. Fourth, the law of Moses provides a new motivation. The law of Moses was based on the conditional Mosaic covenant, and so the motivation was due in order to be blessed. The law of Christ is based on the unconditional new covenant, and so the motivation is you have been and are blessed, therefore due. The reason there is so much confusion over the relationship of the law of Moses and the law of Christ is that many commandments are similar to those found in the Mosaic law, and many have concluded that certain sections of the law have, therefore, been retained. It has already been shown that this cannot be the case, and the explanation for the sameness of the commandments is to be found elsewhere. The same is true when we compare the law of Christ with the law of Moses. There are many similar commandments. For example, nine of the Ten Commandments are to be found in the law of Christ, but this does not mean that the law of Moses is still in force. 
The law of Moses has been rendered inoperative, and we are now under the law of Christ. There are many different commandments. Under the law of Moses, we would not be permitted to eat pork, but under the law of Christ, we may. There are, similar, uh, there are many similar commandments, but they are nonetheless two separate systems. If we do not kill or steal today, this is not because the law of, of Moses, but because of the law of Christ. On the other hand, if I steal, I am not guilty of breaking the law of Moses, but of breaking the law of Christ, end quote. Now, that was a lengthy quote, but I think he unpacks it in quite a wonderful way. I love Fruchtenbaum that way. So, in closing out here, let me get to this last paragraph. The Christian living under the law of Christ has both positive and negative commands that direct his life. Where Scripture does not provide specific commandments, it gives divine principles that guide the Christian's walk. That is, to walk in love, to glorify God in all things, etc. Let me be careful here in this closing out. Romans to Revelation provide the body of commandments for the Christian living under the law of Christ. But I would also, and I don't have it here in the notes, but I would also include sections of the Gospel of John, especially when he's in the upper room and he's communicating divine revelation that is going to be relevant to the Christian living in the dispensation of the church age, specifically with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there you can look at John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. And so he does give information in there that is relevant to the believer living in the dispensation of the church age. Now, I know that this raises questions, you know, what do we do with the Sermon on the Mount? You know, does that apply to us directly? Uh, are we? Are those our commands? Uh, I know that this raises issues, but I think as far as the principles and the truth set forth in dispensationalism, I think that those, that that's, that those, that that is a core uh, truth and a reality of Scripture. And so I know that here towards the end, I focused specifically on the law of Moses and the law of Christ as it pertains to the rule of life. Um, and certainly there are things yet to be unpacked and to understood in a fuller way. And I will leave that for you for graduate studies and doctoral studies at a future time. Again, this is intended to be a survey of theology, so I'm I'm trying to keep it above board and to be like that stone that skips across the water and just touches the high points, introducing you to these doctrines without getting too far down into it. But I did feel the need in this particular uh, lesson to um, compare and contrast uh, the law of Moses with the law of Christ. So hopefully this has been helpful to you. Hopefully you've learned some things and benefited from this. Uh, next time we pick up, we will spend some time talking about the biblical covenants. I thank you very much, and I wish you a good day.